Hi, I'm Alison. I'm from 7pm Kirribilli. Today I'm reading from 2 Samuel chapter 15 verses 7 to 31. It's on page 271. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Let me go to Hebron and fulfil a vow I made to the Lord. While your servant was living at Geshur in Aram, I made this vow. If the Lord takes me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is the king in Hebron. Two hundred men from Jerusalem had accompanied Absalom. They had been invited as guests and went quite innocently, knowing nothing about the matter. While Absalom was offering sacrifices, he also sent for Ahithophel the Gilanite, David's counsellor, to come from Gilo, his hometown. And so the conspiracy gained strength and Absalom's following kept on increasing. A messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. The king's officials answered him, Your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king chooses. The king set out with his entire household following him, but he left ten concubines to take care of the palace. So the king set out with all the people following him, and they halted at the edge of the city. All his men marched past him, along with all the Kerathites and Pelathites, and all the 600 Gittites who had accompanied him from Gath marched before the king. The king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why should you come along with us? Go back and stay with King Absalom. You are a foreigner, an exile from your homeland. You came only yesterday, and today shall I make you wander about with us when I do not know where I am going? Go back and take your people with you. May the Lord show you kindness and faithfulness. But Ittai replied to the king, As surely as the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, whether my lord the king may be, whether it means life or death, there will your servant be. David said to Ittai, Go ahead, march on. So Ittai the Gittite marched on with all his men and the families that were with him. The whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley and all the people moved on toward the wilderness. Zadok was there too, and all the Levites who were with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark of God, and Abiathar offered sacrifices until all the people had finished leaving the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favour in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it 
and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Do you understand? Go back to the city with my blessing. Take your son Abiyamaz with you, and also Abiathar's son Jonathan. You and Abiathar return with your two sons. I will wait at the fords in the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar took the ark of God back to Jerusalem and stayed there. But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. Now David had been told, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David prayed, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. Well, hi, 6pm. If I haven't met you before, my name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here. Great to be with you here on this cold, miserable night. Uh, Let's pray as we come before God's word. Heavenly Father, you say that your word is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. So we pray you would do that now by your Holy Spirit. Speak into our lives, press these words into our hearts, grow us to be more like Jesus, train us, challenge us, encourage us, and spur us on for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a famous poem some of you may have heard of called Ozymandias. Uh, It's a poem that has a traveler who's traveling through a desert and comes across a statue of an old king, a king whose glory days have long gone. The statue's abandoned, crumbling, forgotten. And the traveller goes up and sees the placard underneath that statue, and it says these words. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look upon my works, ye mighty, and despair. There's Ozymandias claiming to be the king of kings, but he's a ruin, forgotten. And it's kind of like King David. We're in the second last week of our series of King David, and if you've been following us so far, King David was one of the most glorious kings in the Bible. He had such highs. And yet here today, we find him in the darkest of days. How the mighty fall. How the mighty fall. Here he is, forgotten, abandoned. He's lost his city. He's lost his influence. He's almost lost his son who wants to kill him. How the mighty fall. What dark days for David. Let me ask you. In your life, when you go through those moments where everything seems to fall apart around you, when everything that you have rested on seems to just crumble, what do you do? Where do you turn? 
when you go through the darkest of days like David's going through, where do you run? See, as a Christian, we know that we're not promised that life will be perfect. Life is still hard. But what I hope we'll see is that David, he's in the darkest of days. He loses everything. His life's crumbling around him. And, but he does not lose his God. He does not lose God. Two questions for us tonight. Number one, why are David's days so dark? And number two, what does David do about it? Number one, why are David's days so dark? And the answer is sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. When we sin, when we rebel against God, the God who loves us, the God who made us, and all of us have, when we do that, it is not a small thing. It is a serious thing to rebel against God, to ignore him. Sin is serious. It has consequences, and it's so tempting for us to downplay our sin, to think that the wrong things we do are not that bad, but sin is serious. Now, if you were with us last week, we saw King David commits a huge sin. He He sleeps with another man's wife. He uses his power for harm, not for good. And then he murders that that woman's husband. So he not only commits sexual immorality, but he commits murder, a huge sin. But here's what I want you to hear. And, And hear this loud and clear. David, we saw last week, even after this horrible act, he is forgiven. In 2 Samuel 12, God said, the Lord has taken away your sin. So please, as you leave tonight, hear loud and clear, God is a God of grace, a God who forgives you through Jesus. That's why he gave his son for you on the cross. No matter what you've done, no matter who you've been, his mercy is more. He's ready to forgive you in Jesus if you just turn to him and repent. David is forgiven. But just because he's forgiven does not mean that sin does not have consequences. Because this is what David was told in 2 Samuel 12, verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. My favorite TV show of all time is Breaking Bad. Any fans? A few of you? Yeah, it's so good. It really just kicked off this golden era of TV. I love it. If you haven't seen it, absolutely recommend it. It is a bit violent, so it's not for everyone, okay? But it's a great show. I'll tell you why I like it. Well, let me tell you the plot. Um, A high school chemistry teacher makes crystal meth and deals drugs. I know it sounds a bit... But roll with me here. Here's why I love it. A lot of TV shows at the moment glorify sin. You kind of watch it and you find yourself rooting for the bad guys. You kind of think, how did this happen? What I love about Breaking Bad is it never glorifies sin. Actually, it shows super clearly the consequences of sin. Walter White, the main guy, uh, you just see the consequences of his sin spiral and spiral and spiral. It affects him. It affects his family. It affects those he loves. He does not get away scot-free. It is not painted in a glorious light at all. All the consequences of his sin are laid 
bear. That's what's happening to King David. He's committed this awful sin, and basically from from that point onwards, chapter 12 onwards, you just see the, the spiral. Let me give you some brief summaries. We didn't read these passages, but let's summarize them. Chapter 13, the very chapter after. David's son, Amnon, rapes his half-sister, Tamar. An awful thing. Something God hates. If you've ever experienced anything like that, it is an awful, it is, it is inexcusable. I'm so sorry. And it gets even worse in the story because Amnon kicks her out and discards her and shames her. Then the the next episode, Absalom, one of David's sons, kills Amnon. You know know the saying, like father, like son? All of a sudden you've got one of David's sons committing sexual immorality, just like David did. And then you've got the other son committing murder, just like David did. The consequences of sin. And then we have our story, chapter 15, where we see David betrayed and conspired against because his son Absalom tries to rip from him the crown and become king. It all starts at the beginning of chapter 15. We didn't hear this part read, but let me summarize a few. Beginning of chapter 15, it starts with Absalom. He wants to become king, and he starts by working on his brand. Any of you in marketing here or PR? Yeah, he starts, he starts by working on his image, working on his brand. That's where he wants to start. So he starts in, in verse 1. He surrounds himself with chariots and horses and gets about 50 men to follow him wherever he goes. Basically, he wants to look royal. He knows it's all about image. Only we know from Psalm 20 that those who trust in chariots and horses do not trust God. It's all about image, and then what he starts to do is he positions himself at the city gate. Now, at the city gate, he would meet all these people that were coming into Jerusalem to meet with King David, to bring King David their problems, so that King David would judge and give a ruling. But Absalom was intervening with the justice. He'd stand at the city gate, and these people would come, and he'd say to them, what's your problem? Why are you going to the king? And they'd say their problem. And Absalom would say, oh, gee, that's terrible. If I were king, I would rule in your favor. If I were king, I would make sure this would stop happening. If I were king, I would take all your problems away. But what a shame that I'm not the king. Because I tell you, you're never going to get a hearing with King David. He doesn't have time for you. He doesn't have the time in his schedule. And if you saw him, he probably wouldn't care either. What a shame I'm not king. He's basically a yes man. He's like, the, you know, we've just been through an election and our politicians are out there, they're on the campaign trail and they make all kinds of promises, don't they? If you vote for me to be prime minister, I will do this and that. And you know, like, when they're on the campaign trail, they can say all these things. But it's not until they're actually elected that you actually say, okay, are you actually going to do it? Or was it just empty promises? Absalom's there. He's basically on the campaign trail. You know, you vote for me. If I become king, here's how good your life's going to be. It's all his brand. And he keeps working on his image. He starts sucking up to people. In verse 5 and 6, we see that he's, he's taking hold of people and kissing them and flattering them and trying to seem like a man of the people. 
You know how the politicians always want to get in a, a photo having a beer in the pub? It's because they just want to seem approachable, like a nice guy, one of you. That's Absalom. He's, he's a master working on his image. And it says that he gains their heart. Verse 6. He stole the hearts of the people of Israel. Step one, accomplished. Brand. Step two, he enacts his plan and conspiracy. He goes to David and says, I want to go to Hebron to worship God. Why Hebron? Hebron was the place David became king. It's a strategic place. So he goes to Hebron. He takes with him hundreds of people. Most of them don't know why they're going. Most of them think, I don't know, I'm going on a free holiday or something like that. Traveling with David and then David, sorry, traveling with Absalom. And then Absalom calls on them to yell out, Absalom is king. Absalom is king. I mean, you remember those days with Rudd and Gillard and you know, the, the way they, they stabbed each other in the back politically and, and vied for the leadership position and all that turbulence. I mean, this is far worse. This is, this is Absalom politically knifing his dad in the back. But not just that, there's a spiritual element here. David is the king God chose. So for Absalom to, to, to kick him out, it's really him saying to God, God, I know better. God, I don't want your ways. I want mine. This is ambition for all the wrong reasons. There's nothing wrong with being ambitious. Nothing wrong. If you are ambitious in your career or in your... Uh, your hobbies, you can be ambitious for good reasons, for the glory of God, to bless others, to steward your financial resources, to to honour God or to serve others. There's all kinds of good reasons you can be ambitious. But that's not what Abba Thorne's doing here. This is ambition that's that's self-serving. You know, when, you, when you're ambitious and you, you use people as a means to an end, you experience people like that? They, they use you as a means to an end or they, they're networking to try and just level themselves up in the social ladder or whatever it might be. That ambition is not good ambition. See, this is not true greatness, Absalom, here. It's all, all of this show and being a yes man You think about Jesus. What did Jesus say? Whoever wants to be great must be a servant. That's greatness. Not this display of royalty and trying to be a yes man and empty promises. That is not greatness. Well, the plan works. David flees. (laughs) He's on the run. I mean, just imagine... Imagine Prince Charles stealing the crown from the queen, kicking the queen out so that she was a fugitive on the run. Just think how wild that would be. That's what's going on here, right? This is massive. David's on the run. And no wonder there's weeping. Have a look at verse 30. David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. 
All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. I mean, David has hit rock bottom. These are his darkest days. He doesn't even have shoes on. He's grieving, abandoned, kicked out. Sin has consequences. It enslaves you. It impacts others. This doesn't mean God doesn't love you. Just because sin has consequences does not mean God lo- doesn't love you. I mean, I've got a toddler, and at the moment I'm learning how to discipline him. And that doesn't mean I doesn't, don't love him. In fact, if I, if I let him run across the road or play with a PowerPoint, that would be a sign that I didn't love him. The very fact I, there are consequences for some of his actions. And we, we're trying to do time out at the moment, and it's kind of working. But the very fact we do that is because I love him, and I care for him, and I want to protect him. Sin has consequences. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. But we've got to heed the warning. Now, someone spoke to me this morning after one of the services and said, okay, my grandfather was an abuser, and then my dad became a quadriplegic. Does that mean my dad became a quadriplegic because of my grandfather's actions? Is that the consequences? We've got to be real careful here. Here in this passage, I mean, in, in these passages, it's made explicitly clear that these are consequences of David's sin. But in a lot of the things that happen in our life, we, we don't, most of the time, don't have a word from the Lord saying this is a consequence of your sin. It's very likely it's just a result of the sin of this world, the, the, the brokenness of this world. In fact, in John chapter 9, Jesus is walking with some of his disciples. They see a blind man, and the disciples say, hey, Jesus, who sinned, this guy or his parents that he's blind? And Jesus said, no, none of those options. So we've got to be careful to not make it out that, that, that every single bad thing that happens in our life is a direct result of a sin that we've committed. It may be, but most of the time it's not, and we don't know. Now, the warning for us here is take your sin seriously. Take your sin seriously. If you have not come to God and repented and said sorry for the ways you've rebelled and offended him, do not delay. Your sin matters. But I hope you'll see that when when we see David climbing up that Mount of Olives in verse 30. There's another king that climbed up the Mount of Olives, Jesus Christ. As he climbed up the Mount of Olives, as Jesus climbed up, he was also weeping, just like David. He was also abandoned. He also faced the darkest of days. In fact, the darkest day of all of history. See, the big difference is this. When David was abandoned... He suffered the consequences for his sin. But Jesus Christ, when he was abandoned, he walked up the Mount of Olives, grieving, weeping. He ended up dying on a cross, and that was not for his sin, but for yours, for mine. He paid the price for the consequences of our actions so we could be forgiven so we could be set free.
That's how serious our sin is, that Jesus died for it. So come to him. Ask his forgiveness. Remember the darkest day of history at the cross where forgiveness was won for us through his blood. So that's why David is in the darkest of days. It's a consequence of his sin. But our second question is, what does David do about it? And the answer is that he trusts God. Here's here's David, abandoned, mocked, and it looks like Absalom has won, doesn't it? It, it, Honestly, it looks like if this was in a TV show, this would be the moment where you, or or a movie, this would be the moment where you think, okay, game over. Absalom is king. Uh, It's all finished. But God does not abandon his king. God does not abandon his king. And you know what? It's the same with Jesus on that cross. As he hung there on that cross, it looked like game over. It looked like the devil has won. Jesus is dead. It looked like sin had, had, had won the day. But God did not abandon Jesus Christ. He rose Jesus from the dead. He defeated sin and death once and for all. If we trust in Jesus, we have eternity, hope, mercy, forgiveness, grace. God did not abandon Jesus And he did not abandon David. David trusted God. Have a look at verse 25. Verse 25 says this, Then the king said to Zadok, Take the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it in his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. A bit confusing what's going on here. David is talking about the ark of God, which is God's presence. David knows that that ark of God belongs in Jerusalem, the city of God. And so he sends the ark back, but he does it in faith. He has trust in God that perhaps one day he will see it again and be king in God's city again. And he submits himself to God. He says, Let God do to me whatever seems good to him. That's faith, isn't it? You ever say to God, God, do to me whatever seems fit to you. Does it remind you of Jesus again? He's there in the Garden of Gethsemane, about to go to his death, and he says to God, his Father, please would you take this suffering away from me, but not my will, but yours be done. He trusted in his father the whole way. David, he has deep faith, deep trust in God. You see the same thing in the next chapter. Verse, chapter 16, if you want to flick the page over, chapter 16, verse 11. David then said to Abishai and all his officials, My son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more then this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery. Another way of translating that is, It may be that the Lord will look upon my sin and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. 
David trusts God. He knows God's a God of grace, a God that gives what he doesn't deserve. And so he says, okay, God, it may be that he, instead of looking at my sin and giving me curses, he might give me grace. He might restore to me blessings. Do you see his trust? Not just that, but he also prays. He prays. Flick back to chapter 15, verse 31. Chapter 15, verse 31, now David had been told, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David prayed, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. David, I mean, anytime you're in your darkest of days, the first thing you should do is pray, isn't it? That's the first thing. That's what David does. He, he knows that one of his mates, Ahithophel, who used to get along with him, has abandoned him and sided with Absalom. And Ahithophel's a wise guy. He knows Ahithophel's going to be giving Absalom advice. And so he prays that God would turn that advice into bad advice, which would lead to Absalom's downfall. But he doesn't just pray. He plans. He plans. He starts coming up with his own conspiracies, his own plans. He sends Zadok and Abiathar to Jerusalem to be spies. And then he takes Hushai and sends Hushai in as, a, as an informant. And Hushai's job was to give bad advice to Absalom. So Absalom's there. He's made himself king. He's listening to good advice from Ahithophel. And Hushai's there undercover working for David and giving him bad advice. Do you see the way in which David trusts God, but he also plans? Across the Bible... We see God is sovereign, in control of all things. But that doesn't mean we just sit back and go, oh yeah, God's sovereign, he's in control, you know, he'll do whatever he wants to do. God's sovereign, but we have real responsibility. David trusts in God, and yet he also, he also plans. The two come together. And sure enough, look at what happens. Flick. Two chapters ahead. We're just going to read one verse. Chapter 17. 2 Samuel 17, verse 14. 2 Samuel 17, verse 14. Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The advice of Hushai, the archite, is better than that of Ahithophel. For the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. David's plan was successful. Hang on, how come, how come it says, for the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel? I thought that was David's plan. Yes, it's both. David's plan and God at work. God sovereignly working through David's plan. And sure enough, this bad advice led to Absalom's downfall, led to his death, and David became king. God does not abandon him. David trusts God. He prays and he plans. Let me go back to my question from the beginning. In your darkest of days, when everything seems against you, when your world seems to be crumbling around you, just like David, the darkest of days, how do you respond? Maybe your life's falling apart because of a sin in your life, the consequences of sin. It may just be the mess of this life. How do you respond? 
David shows us what it looks like to trust God, to look to him for strength, to remember his grace, to depend on his goodness, to trust in him and yet also plan, depending on him, but plan and work, knowing that God is working all things together for good. We see in David that he can lose everything but he has not lost God. And no matter what you go through, church, no matter how alone you feel, abandoned you feel, no matter how much you feel like the world's up against you, you will never be abandoned by God if you trust him. I know we're doing a lot of page flicking, but as we finish, can you turn to Psalm 3? It's on page 463. Psalm 3. As you turn there, if, if you're not very familiar with the Bible or church, the Psalms are a whole bunch of songs and poems written for different occasions. Now, Psalm 3, page 463. Psalm 3, look at the inscription it says at the top of the Psalm. A Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. David wrote this Psalm while he was on the run. He wrote this psalm during the events we've just been talking about, when the world was up against it, his darkest of days. As we read this, let me ask you, I wonder if you could make this psalm your prayer. Make this psalm your song. Maybe now in the dark days you're going through now, or maybe in the future. Psalm 3. Lord, how many are my foes. How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord. Deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be your people. He's there, he says, how many are my foes? So many people rising up against me, but David knows God is his shield. He may not have an army, but God's his shield. God's the one who's going to lift his head high. And I don't know about you, but I'd have trouble sleeping if I knew my son was trying to kill me. But he says, I can sleep in peace. God's sustaining me. The tens of thousands are coming against him. He will not fear. And he looks to God for justice. He calls on God's name for deliverance. Such is the trust of David towards God and the confidence he has that God will not abandon his promises, just like God did not abandon Jesus on that cross. One writer says, in one sense, David leaves Jerusalem with nothing. But in fact, David leaves Jerusalem with everything, for he has God. And in your darkest days, 
That is always the case. If you trust Jesus, you may lose everything, but God is your shield. He's your glory. He's the one you can call upon. He's the one who sustains you, and you need not fear. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, I want to pray for those in the room right now who are in dark days. Comfort them now with the words of David here, this song, that you are their shield, the one who sustains them and that they need not fear. For all of us, would you give us that deep trust in you? Thank you that you are with us, that we can trust you with all of our problems and all of the mess of our life. Lord, would you help us to take our sins seriously? Would you help us to repent, to to say sorry, to ask for your help to change us? And Father, thank you that when Jesus hung on that cross and bore the consequences of our sin, you didn't abandon him, that king, Jesus, but you rose him again from the dead and that we're forgiven. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would forgive us. We thank you for the forgiveness we have in Jesus and help us, help us to live for you and to trust you day by day. We pray this for your glory.